You're listening to Alternative Thinking, Both Sides of the Coin, a production of the Canadian Association of Alternative Strategies and Assets, where we explore today's markets and alternative investments from two distinct perspectives. In this episode, we're happy to speak with two experts from the foreign exchange market, one who heads those operations at a major Canadian asset manager in Canada, and the other in charge of a global platform that facilitates these trades. We talk about such things as FX flows, the Triffin Dilemma, and even Bitcoin, so get ready. James Brown is the president and co-founder of CASA. All opinions expressed during the show by James and our show guests remain their own and should be used for informational and educational purposes only. Find out more about CASA at casa.ca. Welcome, this is James Baran from CASA. This is Alternative Thinking. We're here with Matt O'Hara with uh, 360 Trading Networks and Tom Nakamura with AGF of Investments. Let's start with start out with uh, self-introductions. Uh, start with you, Matt. First off, thanks, James, for having us on, on the podcast today. Happy to be here. My name is Matt O'Hara. I'm the CEO of 360T uh, Incorporated, the America's arm of the 360T group focused on Canada, uh, the US, North America, Central and, and South America. And 360T is a global electronic foreign exchange marketplace operator and foreign exchange fintech provider. We've been operating for 21 years and we support over 2,500 clients that operate out of over 100 countries around the world. And the simple premise of 360T is we connect the buy side to the sell side uh, to enable them to access pricing, compare, contrast, mm-hmm. aggregate pricing together and then um, execute uh, in a way that's integrated with surrounding workflow infrastructure such as order management systems. Wow, so you're in 100 countries. Eh? So why wouldn't you, say, be in some of the other 92 or 94 countries around the world? Is there uh, is there something with their the trading infrastructure in there? Or? Yeah, it's, we, we're a web-based platform, so we're not restricted in terms of uh, where we can get to, but we focus on the currency markets and and therefore we focus on liquid currency markets and typically con- convertible um, currency pairs that are actively traded um, around the globe. Uh, that doesn't mean that we're not focused on onshore restricted currencies such as Brazil as an example. We actively support those markets, but hmm. we're primarily focused on the countries uh, that have um, the most meaningful foreign exchange volume that's transacted on a global basis and the currency pairs that obviously support those sovereign currencies. Oh, very cool. Um, how about for, um, uh, I guess I'm not as familiar as this area as others because it's, it's uh, rather intricate, rather rather uh, like, a, like a slight vertical maybe from from some of the other spots. So, so why do dealers work with you guys? Is it more like it's a it's you have the best pipes or is it, is it more like a utility or is there there's something in your distribution pattern that they like? Yeah, sure. Good question. And, and the nature of the foreign exchange market is is typically OTC. The vast majority of the global foreign exchange market is traded through direct channels, bilateral um, mm. credit mediated channels, which means that it's difficult for buy side participants to obtain pricing from multiple different counterparties, compare and contrast, aggregate that pricing together. And that's the genesis of of where 360T came from 21 years ago. At the end of the 90s, there was a drive by the sell side to introduce electronic trading platforms to the buy side. And the drive from the sell side came from a desire to differentiate themselves, but also to try and reduce costs by electronically distributing pricing. 
And the result of that was buy side clients would have one, two, four, five, 10, 15 banks coming to them saying, use my new shiny electronic trading platform. Oh, wow. It's just not practical to log into all of these different trading platforms. And that's where the multi-bank platforms came from. And it was the genesis of 360T, solving a problem by giving uh, buy side clients one access point, one gateway, one platform that's integrated to surrounding infrastructure, like an order management system, a risk management system, where they can obtain pricing from all their brokers in one place, compare, contrast, and then choose who they trade with, typically the best price. Oh, that's great. Thanks. Uh, so how about, like you mentioned clients. Uh, so who, who are your clients? Is it just strictly you, you work with the banks and then they like they, they would interface with a pension plan or hedge, hedge fund and such, or do you work directly with, uh, with those pools of capital as well? Yes, there's always two sides to the trade. There has to be two sides to the trade. And, and given the OTC nature of the foreign exchange market, it's typically banks are the sell side. It could be a non-bank market maker for which there's a handful that are, are very good that um, you know face off against a credit intermediary and then to the buy side. But it's mm -hmm. typically... Um, you know, banks of all shapes and sizes, um, all of the Canadians, uh, the big global, you know, mega money center banks, custodian banks, onshore um, specialized banks in restricted currency countries um, that are providing pricing to uh, the buy side. And uh, you typically don't have buy side meet and buy side because, uh, mm. you know, it's the banks that offer the credit, um, which is what um, facilitates the OTC foreign exchange marketplace and is the main reason why the pricing that, that two different clients might receive could be different based on who they are and their credit profile and what it is that they're trading. Oh, so is there opportunity for disintermediation there? Or is it, you, you, it sounds like you're saying it's, it's always kind of going through the banks because they provide all these other types of, of services around it. Yeah, there are innovative new credit paths where you can have a central counterparty um, that can facilitate two market participants um, trading and matching off against each other. Um, you know, this has been a dynamic in the marketplace for some time now. Um, and, you know, it really comes down to the cost of credit because the cost of credit is either within the price or the cost of credit is a fee mm. that's charged to either side of the trade. Uh, to enable them to trade with each other. Love it. Well, let's go to Tom. Uh, Tom, what are you doing at uh, at EGF, uh, head of head of FX? Uh, how long have you been there? What kind of what kind of issues do you see coming up with uh, with your with your book and and the many markets that you're trading in? Hey James, again, uh, thank you for having me. And um, yeah, as as uh, you know, I started at AGF back in 1998 and uh, progressed through the ranks. Good timing. <laughs> I think I don't know if there's bad timing anymore or or there's like optimal timing anymore but, yeah well um, August 98 would have been the best for sure <laughs> um yeah and, and most of my career I was a, a you know fixed income and currency generalist and a few years ago uh, a new role was created to to really focus on currency strategy and some of the uh, execution and operational um expertise that we really needed to to build up and expand out across the organization and you know my role at AGF is really just to to corral the team and and kind of build out our plan for our firm over the next several years. Um, and you know, AGF is a is a diversified global asset management firm with with a variety of clients. You know, individual investors, financial advisors, and mm -hmm. institutions like pension plans and sovereign wealth funds and such. 
um, and and really as as fiduciaries for these assets, um, you know, we we really are looking at different ways we can, you know, make sure we're adding value and being good uh, caretakers of 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 the capital. In terms of uh, FX, and I and, you know, I think market players like three sixty T have have really kind of you know i think we're starting to really get some good innovation technology wise in fx markets and as um as matt described fx markets have been largely otc and and mm-hmm. has it's been tricky um in electronifying the trading compared to other uh, other asset classes certainly more, uh, a lot trickier than equities uh even more tricky than fixed income because of um, some of the way FX is uh, is managed, some of the OTC characteristics, the credit characteristics that uh, Matt talked about, but also um, tenors, right? Like we do a lot of um, hedging or, or use of forward contracts. So we have a, um, a, a bunch of dates uh, going forward and, mm-hmm. and that really tends to fragment the liquidity even more. So I think there's, there's, some, there's some challenges ahead um, but I think there's been some great innovation over the past decade, and uh, you know I think there's I think there's you know a good good road ahead for us on on the FX side. Cool, I got a lot of questions here. That was great. So let's start with maybe the the, the last part there. So you have it's the obviously spot market and forwards. You you get you get into more of the other kinds of dudes like futures, options, swaptions, and all that kind of cool stuff. Or is it mostly just roll it out and uh, plain vanilla sort of sort of trades that you guys are putting on? Yeah, we're we're largely plain vanilla right now. Um, you know, I think the the next kind of area for us to explore is on is probably on the options side. Um, and I think you know there there again there's there's a bunch of um, lots of interesting ways for us to be able to to manage money and and uh, put on views or or hedge our risks. Uh, but again, from a an efficiency perspective, you know, I think. Especially when we're thinking about keeping an eye on execution costs, um, being able to prove out best execution or or calculate transaction costs, um, it's it you know that that electronic venue becomes more and more important, and you know finding finding ways to take again that fragmented liquidity and and the variability that's there um, becomes becomes a challenge. Mm-hmm. So how do you? Maybe it's more at the portfolio level. Like, do you do you uh, you say FX strategy? Do you talk to folks about in your in your team about whether to hedge or not to hedge? I remember there was a, a large, I just say a large pension plan here. They did it. It was about fifteen years ago, and they did this whole study and they figured out, okay, you know what? The optimal hedge is fifty percent because you're half right, half wrong. It goes one way or the other. You're either short term right or wrong, or you're long term right or wrong. But uh, how, how do you guys look at hedging? within your portfolio and, and does that tail wag the dog or is it more like it comes from the, the inner workings of, or the, uh, the basic premise, the mandate of the portfolios that you're running? Yeah, I think, I think there, you know, um, myself and, and certainly my, my peers have taken a bit more of a sophisticated stance towards this. A lot of it really mm-hmm. comes down to the mandate, right? Like what is, what is our client looking for or what kind of products are we designing and what is the risk profile that we're trying to achieve? Um, and sometimes it's it is uh, you know a fully hedged vehicle, and and uh, it's you know trying to match the 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 types of risks, the types of exposures that a portfolio has, 
with with the objectives and and ultimately what is the client experience um, designed to look like. In other cases, I think mm. it's it's managing those risks relative to the the other risks and opportunities in in the portfolio in the scope of the mandate and understanding that and finding best ways to to take advantage of or or to to translate um, the investment thesis or the investment views that are that are present and and finding ways that are the best expressions of those views and sometimes that's you know driven by a currency view uh, sometimes it's driven by you know an equity view a rates view a credit view and then we can decide what we do with the the, the currency risk and, and how it might fit into the overall portfolio. Uh, so how about costs? Like are, are, are is trading costs, uh, I guess it is evolving in some way. Is, is it going down because of all the, uh, the maybe other players in the markets or um, all the other, like other, other providers or just, just liquidity providers or, or generally costs and spreads uh, going up. I'm kind of thinking they're going down, but, but you would know exactly. Tom. Yeah, I, I, I think generally, yes, they're going down. Um, for, for a number of reasons. I think there's a lot more scrutiny on, on FX markets and, and the, the costs. Uh, I'm sure Matt can, can, can give us a, a big history lesson on this. Um, but, mm-hmm. but I think there's, there's definitely a downward trend. Um, and, and because of, of um, the electronification of trading, which, which helps considerably uh, because of the scrutiny. Um, but at the same time, I think there are, you know, just like a lot of asset, other asset markets, there are kind of disruptive elements in, in some of the structure of the market that that probably, mm. you know, prevents us from getting too much further along than we are. And certainly we know, you know, certain times of the day, certain currency pairs, you know, the liquidity is going to be quite poor. Um, but I think this is something that the, the technology and the amount of data that we have has allowed us to really navigate through and understand if you want to execute at a low cost, what, what are the strategies for doing that? Great. How about to you, Matt? Yeah. How, what have you found uh, from your, like, the, say, the 21 years in business you guys have been in? And, and obviously, the infrastructure has changed, the players have changed, but how have costs come into into effect? And and uh, maybe are, are you guys using, are your clients using algos to trade this, like they would in the equity markets, or is it more, is there some other way that they put on these trades so it's not um, it's not as obvious maybe to other market participants? There's there's obviously a cost. For doing business and um you know the cost is always going to be present um and you know there's a cost for the banks to provide the services that they provide to the buy side there's a cost for the technology that both the banks and the, the platforms the third parties such as, mm-hmm. as 360t the exchanges have so on and so forth and is that cost um you know is that absorbed by the sell side is it absorbed by the buy side is it is it in the spread is it in brokerage fees and the answer is there's various different models, right? There's, there's various different models that, that fit different um, segments of the market. And, um, you know, what's happened over the past two decades is a compression in spreads um, to the point where, you know, there's choice pricing in, um, you know, kind of the developed market currencies up to certain notional levels. Uh, they're still present. Uh, spreads are still present in um in less liquid currency pairs and, and instruments. Um, and there's a direct correlation to um, the um, adoption of technology and, and automation, let's say, because automation directly correlates with the complexity of the underlying instrument, which is why you see you know, the vast majority of the spot 
world now transacted electronically um, and the competition mm. there is is very very fierce and because the spreads are so thin and because the market is so transparent and technology is used to to try and capture those very very small margins when um, you know very significant volumes are going through at a very high velocity now you see the SOPs market is becoming more electronic the options market is becoming more electronic non-deliverable forwards are becoming more electronic mm. but but they're kind of lagging behind um, G10 spot in developed markets uh, as as an example and um, you know that the cost model is something that comes up um, on a very regular basis for all the right for all the right reasons and and there are different models out there and um, you know I think it's really important for the market to understand how cost is applied to the foreign exchange market and um, because there are all these different models you might be you know kind of paying for a a market data terminal and you think well you haven't got any costs but you have because you're paying for the market data terminal and, yeah. if you're, and you know, the market trading, data yeah yeah and, and if you're trading on a on a bank single bank portal that might not cost anything but it did cost the bank and how do you prove best execution so you know the cost the cost discussion is is very interesting but costs have gone down you know that's that's a that's an absolute given and i think technology and automation has been a real driver around this and we we saw something very interesting, you know, back at the end of Q1, pretty much this time, you know, a year ago in, in February, March, where you had everybody, you know, moving home, very challenging market conditions, uncertainty that led to heightened volatility, that led to amplified volumes, um, all while the market was adopting or adapting, I should say, to, to you know, not being in, in, in the office. And mm. that, that impacted liquidity and it impacted pricing. So cost went up because risk went up. But then we saw, um, you know, people adapting what they were doing. Initially, you know, they'd revert to traditional methods of trading over the phone. And while they could get a fill over the phone, um, the spreads were so much wider and so much further away from uh, the middle of the market. And then we started to see, you know, kind of people adapt what they're doing because the cost of executing their business went up. And we started to see them changing their mechanisms and behaviors um, and adopting new um, you know, new means, new methodologies. Um, you mentioned algos. We saw a big uptick in in algo usage. Um, we saw more people trading algos. We saw clip sizes go up. We saw clip sizes go down. We saw currencies that weren't pro weren't historically traded via algos started to be executed with algo orders. And and now you're beginning to see non-deliverable forward algos. Now you're beginning to see um, algos for the forwards and swaps market, which are all off the back of what's happened over the last 12 months, where wow. I think everybody like kind of, you know, they, they they looked at what they were doing and said, you know what, we can do this better and we have to do it better because they were being tasked with doing more with less effectively and they didn't have a choice. Pretty soon there'll be algos for the algos. Well, that's great because it's uh, had all these, uh, a few questions on flows and and like, oh, and you, you, I know you didn't actually say the word COVID, but there I did. Uh, so, uh, you know, we, we had Tom's colleague, John, on uh, when about a year ago, and he said, you know, we proved that the BCP works and it's not BCP to some offsite where everybody gets together. It's two people's, you know, libraries and bedrooms and kitchen tables and that. And, um, you know, as we go back, uh, are we going to need the same amount of floor space and such? Uh, maybe we'll, we'll stick with you, Matt. Like, how did you um, how did you guys adapt to that? Or were were your traders always in like uh, like? packed trading rooms or were they were they kind of dispersed uh, uh previous to covid 
Yeah, so we, we, we're not principal to any trade. We're not a broker-dealer, um, so we don't have traders. Ah. Um, but um, we reacted in, I think, a similar way to everybody else. We, we watched very carefully, and um, it was interesting because, you know, we've, we've grown fairly significantly over recent years, and we decided to expand our office space in Q4 of 2019. And um, in hindsight, maybe that wasn't the best choice back then, but um, we, uh, you know, we took the approach of um, making sure that we anticipated what it is that our clients could be needing, whether it would be, you know, kind of additional accesses to work from home, whether it's, um, you know, different security measures to, to work from home, whether it's access to information and data that, that they, they didn't have or couldn't have because they're not sitting, you know, kind of in their office. So, you know, we, we anticipated what it is that our clients might need. And we, we took a very proactive approach to making sure that our, our clients were enabled. And that's what we tried to do. I mean, first and foremost, we, we made sure that our team was, was safe and, and operational. And, and then we focused on, you know, what it is that we thought our clients could and would need and, and went about getting that done. Very cool. How about you, Tom? Uh, similar to what, what John said on our earlier podcast about a year ago, or was there something different with, with your team in the, the FX side? Yeah. I mean, I, I, you know, I think, I think one of the things that's, that's been interesting for us, like in our portfolio management group or investment management professionals, I think, you know, to some degree we've been kind of, um, doing this off and on, you know, when we, when we have analysts or portfolio managers traveling to meet clients or, um, go to conferences, they, they, they had a, a workflow that allowed them to work away from from the office. You know, I think John Christophilus, our, our head trader, I think you know that's that was a very special test case, and they pulled through with flying colors. Um, you know, I think for myself, it was it was fairly seamless because, as I said, like when I do travel, I I bring that capability with me. Mm-hmm. I think the thing that I'm I'm most impressed with and most thankful for, to be honest, is is our is our operations, like our back office. I mean. You know, these are people that um, probably never dreamed that they'd ever, they'd ever have to work from home, um, or or would be able to, and and they were able to pull it together. And that was a lot of hard work. And you know, I think, right. you know, as much as we can put into technology, as much as we can design processes and workflows, and and think through what the contingencies are, ultimately it's the people, right? The people who who mm-hmm. that we have that that want to that want to make it work, that that will go that extra mile to. You know, maybe the first few times you do this, it's it's a big learning curve. It's a big new experience, um, and you have to adapt. Um, but you need people that have the passion to make it happen. And you know, I think we've been blessed at AGF with that uh, that kind of character in our organization. Very cool. Do you think people will like they like it now? It's been a year, and it'll be a few more months before people start really heading back. I think so. <laughs> do you think they'll be like, you know what? Hey, can I just do this for? ever or for at least a few days a week or or maybe you personally i you know i think i think there's probably people on both sides of this like i i I think there are people that just hate it and can't wait for the day that we can go back into the office on mass and and there are those that be like hey i can get used to this you know and i think a lot of people fall in the middle i think um a lot of us we you know we like some of the things from working from home but i don't know if we want to do it you know all the time and never see each other in the office. And I, I think that's probably the bulk mm-hmm. of the people and the bulk of my experience talking with my, you know, with my colleagues across the organization. 
Yeah, from my side, I mean, how long does it take for human behavior and routine to change? Um, you know, it, it, definitely in a year, you have new routines and you have new behaviors. And and when we all first went home, you know, being the guy that's responsible for the business, I'm thinking about control. I'm thinking about productivity. I'm thinking about growth. And right. my team and I think the market in general responded and reacted so positively, like did a phenomenal job. Um, we had a record year. We bought on a record amount of new clients. So they've proven that it can be done. But some of the challenges were we we hired new people in January. So to to bring new people into the organization and for them to learn via osmosis and, yeah. and really kind of get a sense of that culture is difficult doing that electronically and or virtually, I should say. Um, and um, I think the future is going to be a lot of what we used to do some of what we've been doing for the last year. It's not going to be the same as it used to be. I think precedents have changed because everybody's had to change at the same time. And, um, and you know, at one point in time, if you wanted to win that client on the West Coast, you had to get on the plane and you had to go and, you know, prove that that you were worthy and you're committed and you'd sit on the other side of the table and look mm-hmm. them in the eye and, and, you know, you'd have that connection where I think that will happen, but less. Um, it just takes one to do it and then everyone else will follow. Um, but I think that precedence changed and, and, you know, instead of seeing that client four times a year, you might see them once a year in person and every other quarter you see them, you know, on a, on a zoom call. So it's, it's going to be different. Um, and I think it will be for the right reasons. Yeah. Yeah. I was thinking for us, like we, I was never downtown that much, but definitely Paul and Caroline were. And, uh, when we flipped to call again, like, yeah, we use Slack and stuff to keep in touch. That works pretty well. And, um, and it beats WhatsApp, I'll tell you that. But you figure out these more, more um, like uh, uh, specialty specialty uh, apps for that type of thing. But realistically, I don't think much has changed for us except for the output. Like yourself, like we just we really cranked up the output and being able to speak with. We, we, typically, our webinars have three to five time zones on them now, so uh, it's been it's been great that way. We've been able to uh, you know just kind of kind of pivot and how much we'll pivot back. I, I kind of want to get on the plane, but I don't know. I don't know if I have my, my plane legs. I don't know what's going to happen if I have to sit down for five hours. It'll be kind of different. <laughs> I, I used to spend 50% of my time on a plane, and I don't miss that anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, so I'm hoping that balance will change. But we want to have people back in the office, and you know, we're, we're planning that um, we will have everybody back in the office. So I, I think we will, and you know, we have to be more flexible because everyone's proven from a productivity standpoint that they uh, they can do a fantastic job, but but I think it's important to have brick and mortar for people to come together. And humans like hanging out with each other generally, yeah. so we want that to happen. Totally. Well, let's uh, it's March thirty first. Let's put a, a stick in the sand here and uh, talk uh, forecasts or, or where for because we've had so much happen in in so many ways, and I, I I've seen um you know there's us dollar there's a euro there's a uk uh, you know the sterling and such and and uh, i've been watching the asian currencies that much or really currencies much at all but you know so where is maybe we'll start with tom on on your desk for your fx strategy is there something that that you guys are looking at from um uh you know from all the maybe it's all the all the not qe but all the spending that's happening in the states with the view on the us dollar what, what's kind of on your plate and then we'll go to matt with his uh from his, from his purview yeah, you know, I think I think um, we've been talking this about this in, as an investment organization around some of the themes that have been 
coming through the market and it, it seems to come just so fast, but you know, the, the whole reopening uh, kind of pivoting to the uh, US stimulus and infrastructure spend. And, you know, I think from a, a currency perspective, I think we're, we're still at a point where, you know, we're, we're struggling to see whether, you know, are we ever going to get concerned about the fiscal side and, and when does that happen? Yeah. <laughs> and, um, and, you know, maybe it doesn't have trillion? to happen. Like, when does it stop? <laughs> right? I don't know. Um, but I think I think for now the markets are more focused on on growth differentials, which you know, by and large in G10 currencies comes down to you know is is the trajectory or the expectations of trajectory in the U.S. better than what we have in Europe? And um, mm -hmm. right now, yes, so far, yes. Um, and and I think that benefits has benefited the U.S. dollar in the in the very short term. I think one of the things that will become really interesting, especially if you know, we'll see how things go um, with vaccine rollouts beyond like the U.S. and the U.K. in terms of the big economies that have done done fairly well, and how we do with variants and things like that. But if we're able to get to a place where this COVID nineteen experience is more and more or less in the rearview mirror. That might set the table for a very interesting uh, play in emerging markets. So, you know, I think right now it's a very high risk and, and maybe not quite high reward enough um, play. But as we progress over the next several months, or it might take a couple quarters, um, we'll kind of see where we are in that. And that could be the next big, big thing. Because I think there are a lot of emerging market currencies that are that that offer some very good value. Um, but they're also reflecting very high risk. Um, but yeah, I think I think that the big bigger question, you know, and whether we start to face the music later next year or beyond is is how do we get back to normal, like the normalization of policy, whether it's monetary policy or fiscal policy, and and the fiscal policy hill to climb is a pretty big one. Um, and I think that's that's where we start to get concerned about, you know, has it taken. The shine off the U.S. dollar, and I'll tell you, like I, you know, I told him we joke about starting in 1998, but you know, I, I think I get the question just about every year: Is this, you know, when, when will the dominance of the U.S. dollar end? And uh, my stock answer has always been, you know, it's, it's going to be the dominant currency for the rest of my career, and um, I think it's still going to be, but I'm less sure than I used to be that <laughs> it's gonna, it's gonna remain the king. Yeah, there was that Triffin dilemma. Like you're you're the reserve currency. You're supposed to treat it treat it well, and and but you have a, a you're really you have a uh, a very strong uh, pull to just spend as much as you can because you can you can do that. Eh? Um, so actually, one more before we go to Matt. So how do you express a view, say on EM? Would you have a currency fund that would put those trades on, or would you, in speaking with the the uh, the equity or, or bond PM, say, you know? You know, if you guys are going to put trades into the EM side, there's actually probably going to be a currency tailwind behind you. Or, like, how, how do you how yeah. do you express that to you? Yeah, yeah. There's a number of ways that we do it, but I guess most directly, like, yes, yes, we do have an emerging market uh, fixed income fund, um, and and there we we have a mix of um, you know hard currency emerging market debt, uh, so mostly denominated in U.S. dollars, as well as local currency debt. And um, you know we can we can allocate we can swing the allocation from one to the other. Um, in our broader global fixed income mandates, we also have scope to to include emerging market uh, local currency debt, and and we do, and and we can ramp that up as well. 
Um, and then more indirectly, I think we we look at you know how 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 are some of these currency headwinds and tailwinds, which you know which companies does it benefit, and you know does that does that help us make decisions on uh, our equity allocations or our corporate credit allocations? So I think there's a number of different ways that uh, we can we can uh, add value by by looking at some of these shifts uh, in the wind over the next few years. Maybe Matt, maybe maybe one thing um, that would be good to talk about is in in kind of as as we kind of go through this, like like do you think we'll see China's currency? Like do you see do you see enough kind of liberalization attempts that you that CNY or CNH I guess, but CNY really becomes um, something that can be traded across platforms readily. We're beginning to see the start of you know the ability for offshore market participants to be able to to participate um, you know onshore, but I don't see that happening rapidly. Um, I think it's going to be a long process. I mean, what's going to be the next reserve currency? Is it China or is it Bitcoin? Oh, you beat me to the punch there. I was going to ask about BTC too. <laughs> um, it's a race, and, and one is definitely faster. <laughs> yeah, it, it, I, I think it's it, it's in our future, Tom, but I think it's a ways out. Well, that was actually my last question was about Bitcoin. So you're thinking it'll be sometime later before this becomes because I so I, I I've been on this clubhouse thing lately, and th- this person who's like a total Bitcoin maximist that he had said there's three stages. I forget the first two. I wish I wish you could record those things. Uh, but he said the third one is when you look at everything in terms of Bitcoin, like that house is 25 Bitcoin and this pen is six Satoshis or, you know, it's like, it, do you think we're going there? Because everything seems to be denominated in US dollars, you know, maybe back in the day, it probably wasn't as global, but you know, it was, it was sterling in that. So is, is that something that's on your radar? Again, probably not in your, your career, Tom, uh, you know, maybe so it will be USD until then, but. But how long is your career? Uh, like another 20, 30 years? Or is it, who knows? What, what do you guys think on that? I think it's easier to opine about the length of my career than <laughs> what's going to happen with Bitcoin. Um, I, you know, I, this is, this is a, this is like, like a great topic. And I think we've been spoiled for like great topics over the past decade. But this one, the one I, the thing I struggle with is, is can we, I don't know if this is the right terminology, but like essentially crowdsource a currency, you know, and, and I think mm-hmm. this is what it comes down to because this is the domain of the sovereign, right? You know, whether it's the U.S. government, the Canadian government, the British government or whatever, issuing yeah. currency. It used to be the Wild West Bank who would do it, but now the sovereigns for sure, yeah. Yeah, and will they give it up and and what and then I guess the question is, what can they do to prevent it from happening? If, if people said, okay, that's fine, but this is our, this is our, you know, um, shadow currency of choice or whatever it is. And mm-hmm. I think it's, I think it's going to be a very interesting um, drama that plays out over the next several years, because because we know central banks are are definitely looking at it. They understand what's happening. Um, they're they're looking at you know, their own issued uh, CBDCs, right? Central bank digital currencies as a, as, as, you know, trying to provide some of the benefits that 
cryptocurrencies and Bitcoin offers, uh, certainly not all of them, um, but while still maintaining control. And I think this is going to be a very interesting space to watch out and a very exi existential one for both Bitcoin as well as the uh, current current currency set. Yeah, I was thinking back to like when we came off the gold standard in 71, you know, obviously being on, on that for 47 years, I think it was, uh, and having gold at 35 bucks was artificially low. So, the, you know, the price popped. But at some point, and FX is it is perfect. Every trade is a short. You're shorting some, you know, yen to get dollars or, you know, euros to get pounds or something like that. So, so it's it's obvious, but it's almost like every trade is like every, everything's going up. It seems real estate, stocks, you know, bond yields are going down or we're like, continuing to trend down, and you know things like like NFTs and DTC are, are heading up. So, I mean, the NFTs are again they're kind of a weird thing, but. You know, is it is it that this, these things are going up, or is just the dollar going going the other way? So maybe uh, Matt, do you have anything to opine on that kind of existential question there? <laughs> I, I think when it comes to cryptos, um, a lot of institutions are spending a lot of time. We are focusing on if we can, if we can, and if we should offer offer cryptos uh, on our platform, and we we host currencies, so you know. You, you take a currency pair and you, you add it to the platform. But, you know, there's questions around custody. There's questions around the regulatory aspects. And I do think, you know, you just mentioned the central banks. I, I, I think the central banks, um, you know, looking at leveraging the benefits that, that are derived from cryptos, um, for which there are many, um, will be the trigger point for, you know, more institutional adoption. But until then, um, I expect to see more of the same. Very cool. Well, we'll leave it uh, leave it there for now, and uh, look forward to having both of you on another uh, podcast again sometime soon. Uh, thanks a lot. Thanks a lot, Matt. Thanks a lot, Tom. Thanks for having us, James. Thanks very much, James. Appreciate it.